Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. Today on Maine Calling, the dangerous effects that marijuana can have on developing brains. Recreational marijuana is now legal in Maine for consumers 21 and older. Medical marijuana is available at age 18. And some health providers are sounding the alarm about the effects that marijuana is having on younger users. They point to the significantly higher potency and to how it affects a part of the brain that is still developing up until the age of 25. The problem is explored in an episode of the documentary series Voices of Hope that airs this evening on Maine Public Television. I'm Keith Shortall, and today on the program we'll talk with some of the voices featured in the program about how marijuana affects young developing brains and about the best public health strategies for tackling the problem. Maine Calling is next. Today on Maine Calling, the dangerous effects that marijuana can have on developing brains. I'm Keith Shortall, and this is Maine Calling. Whether in the form of edibles or vaping or smoking, cannabis use is prevalent among young people, even those in their teens. Today we'll find out how harmful cannabis can be to their health and what's being done in schools to address marijuana use among students. Joining me, Dr. Jeffrey Barkin. He practices forensic and clinical psychiatry and is an associate chief medical officer of Change Healthcare. He's past president of the Maine Medical Association. And Jay Orser. He is 18 years old and a senior at Yarmouth High School. Today's show is linked to a documentary series airing on Maine Public Television called Voices of Hope. It's about substance use and recovery. The episode about cannabis and its impact on youth airs tonight at 8. We invite you to join the conversation. Email talk at mainepublic.org. Post a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. Welcome to uh, both of you. The Good premise, morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, the, the premise of the, of the film here, I guess, is that, and correct me, is that uh, marijuana, and specifically this new high-dose marijuana that we're seeing on the market today, is becoming a, a health crisis of particular concern for young people. Uh, 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 Dr. Barkin, would, would you say that's accurate? Yes, I think that that's a bottom line, the highest level synopsis. And I really want to focus not so much on people who are not in youth, adults. Maine has a thriving cannabis adult market, which is quickly becoming part of our main economy up there with lobsters and blueberries, though the lobsters seem to be going north these days. So we're confronted with this massive social experiment that we live in. And we have to realize that we're all different and that we have to appreciate that with a healthy, thriving market in anything come risks and risks can occur to different groups. So some groups are at higher risk. And the concern here is the real risk that is found, not any political or polemic or argumentative tone, but the risk of, of highly potent THC products, marijuana products, on the development of brains in youth, particularly those under, say, age 25. 
and we have Jay here and he can tell his story, but the effects of cannabis, particularly the really strong high potency products that are now commonly available, really dangerous in young people. And that's the concern. Would you acknowledge as a, as a healthcare professional that there are benefits uh, to be derived from marijuana for certain people and in certain conditions? I think that the evidence is mixed. There are anecdotal reports, and this is because marijuana has been illegal. And as a result of its being illegal, it hasn't been rigorously studied. Also, marijuana plants themselves contain hundreds of psychoactive chemicals. So when we say, is cannabis helpful? The question is, well, what part of the cannabis plant and in what ratios are helpful? There are some people with certain pain conditions that can benefit from marijuana products, osteoarthritis, particularly pain conditions that haven't responded to other treatments like physical therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, Tylenol, that kind of thing. Uh, there are people with AIDS wasting syndrome or cancer uh, chemotherapy induced nausea that may benefit from cannabis products. But what we've now come into isn't that. We've come into a zone where there is no limitation in the medical marijuana, so-called medical marijuana market, used to have this concept of qualifying conditions. And that really answers your question, Keith, of, well, what is the role? But over time, as time has moved forward, there is no need when somebody qualifies for medical marijuana to even list a qualifying condition. The film points out that last year, Maine Health's 12 emergency rooms reported more than 5,200 visits for adverse effects of marijuana use. More than a quarter of those involved patients under the age of 18. So that's 50% higher than the year before, 2021. What does that tell us? Is that Does that point directly to the fact that this is not the marijuana of the 1960s or 70s or even 80s? That's exactly correct. So let's sort of unpack that. If you look at the number of people under age six who end up going to the hospital because of an edible ingestion, accidental ingestion, between 2017 and 2021, that number went up 1,375%, okay? Now, of those kids under age six getting admitted to the hospital after an ingestion of an edible, 91% of those exposures occurred in their own home. So what that tells me is as cannabis has become normalized in society, my goodness, I walk around Portland and see cannabis shops everywhere, right? That we're gonna see more and more use and the potency has really, really increased. And it's the increased potency over time that's created this problem, again, particularly in kids. Uh, Jay, I want to bring you in at this point. Um, you were 13 when you started smoking marijuana, as I understand it from the film. You were in eighth grade, um, and you you managed to, to, you were introduced to it by, by whom? By the siblings of, uh, older siblings of friends? Yeah, I had some buddies that had some older siblings that were all into that. And, and so, and, and just, you just started because you were curious or you thought it was cool or. It was sort of both. It was like, oh, the older kids want to hang out with us. Let's see what they do for fun. And we noticed it was that. And we just kind of dove in and tried it. And after I tried it, I was kind of like, all right, 
Um, I think I'm going to stick with this. I think this is something I want to keep doing. What was it about it that made you feel that way? What was the feeling that you got or didn't feel? Um, it was that feeling of um, just my mind wasn't racing. It was calmed, slowed. Um, I was just like, I could just do whatever in that moment. I didn't really need to think about anything. I was just along for the ride at that point. And that's the feeling I really liked. Um, so, and did, but did it affect your daily life? So, you know, school, um, your relationships at home, what, when did you start to notice that, um, things were changing? Um, I started to notice stuff was changing when, um, I wasn't coming home at night. I'd be out all night wanting to just smoke all the time. Um, using it during school. Um, before class, going into class, um, the only way I could eat is if I smoked marijuana. Um, I just, I relied on it in little things, like even just going out with buddies, like to go shopping, like we would all get high and then go shopping. It just turned into a daily, a daily thing. And any activity that we did just involved us smoking. That um, you were arrested the first time at 16. That is correct. And, and that would that didn't deter or change anything in your in your mind. No, I just kind of saw it as oh, I'm 16, like it's whatever. Um, I'm young, like I'll learn from it, whatever. I can come back from it. I can keep doing all this stuff. And, and so, what was the what would you say is the turning point? Um, the turning point is, was definitely when this year, um, August 12th of 2022, when I got arrested for OUI, um, that definitely, that definitely changed my mindset about a lot of things. And so how, and so what did you do? Did you decide on your own that you were going to stop or did you, did you need help? Um, I needed a lot of help. I wasn't ready to change what I was doing, my plan was, oh, I got no UI, whatever. Like, I can keep using. Like, this is no big deal. I'm 18. Like, I'm young. Doesn't matter. It'll all just get wiped anyways. Because all the other charges I've had have gotten wiped. So I just kind of saw it as, oh, like, I can keep doing everything I've been doing. So, so, but, so, so then who intervened? How did you, how did you finally get to where you are now? Um, it was actually my mother that intervened. She noticed, uh, she picked me up from the police station that night at 1.30 a.m., um, brought me home. I slept all night, um, woke up still high and hungover, and she noticed um, that I wasn't wearing a long sleeve shirt for the first time because I've been wearing a long sleeve shirt for like four months straight, like different, all these um, occasions. She noticed my arms and um, I have been trying to take my life for a little bit now. And she had noticed my arms were cut open. And so she got me on the phone with the suicide hotline. I didn't want to talk to them. I finally was like, all right, fine, I'll talk to them. And uh, that, that was the first step that really got me to change my mindset on a lot of things was that one phone call. And how are you doing now? Um, I'm doing fantastic. 
actually amazing. Um, I'm working with Voices of Hope, which has definitely been um, a very good experience for me. It's helped me a lot in my mental state and getting me out and sharing this information with people that definitely could use some help. Well, thank you for sharing it. It's, it's so much more compelling to hear personal experiences, as difficult as they are, um, but you, you're, you're doing um, society a great favor in sharing, uh, sharing your story. I want to turn now to David Packham, who is the executive producer of Voices of Hope, The Rugged Road to Recovery. Uh, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you for having me. So you've joined us at a point in the conversation here with Jay, who's featured in the film. Let's talk about why you, uh, how you became involved. You have your own personal story about why you felt it's important to raise awareness about the issue of substance abuse in general, and in this case, among young people. Uh, well, my son is an alcoholic, uh, and he's in four years of recovery. It's a, it's a great story. We couldn't really help him much with his recovery, but we wanted to learn more about addiction in general. And uh, the more we learned, the more we needed to find a way to, um, to communicate that to, to other people, and especially young people. We, knew, we know that addiction is an adolescent onset disease. So all addiction for profit businesses, and I include marijuana in that one, uh, target kids. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They have no business. They have no sustainable business with, without addicting uh, teens and young adults. That's just the deal. Uh, I didn't set out to do a, you know, an episode on, uh, on cannabis, uh, but the more interviews we did, the more research we did, we've now, we now have the episode airing tonight for an hour, and then next Thursday night will be the second hour. Uh, so... I think, uh, you know, our schools and our college campuses have figured out the connection between high-potency THC and anxiety and depression and, and suicide and even violence. You'll find out about that in Episode 8. Um, but the other amazing things, there's so many myths about, about marijuana. One of the amazing things is that uh, Nora Volkoff, someone that uh, Dr. Barkin knows well, National Institute of Drug Abuse, they recently published uh, a study that said that marijuana in its current dosages is twice as addictive for teens than opioids. Now that is something that is shocking uh, and, and people do not understand. And certainly our lawmakers haven't drawn the connection between uh, opi opioid overdoses and the use of marijuana in young people because on the one hand, they're working feverishly to reduce op uh, opioid overdoses. But, uh, you know, they recently hired a uh, director of cannabis public policy and regulation who is a cannabis insider. Uh, and this man was on the Portland Press-Herald front page uh, just a couple of weeks ago, January 9th, uh, extolling the virtues of this booming economy and really scolding those towns in Maine that did not want to welcome uh, cannabis into their towns. So our state lawmakers have not drawn the connection yet between uh, marijuana use in young people and opioid overdoses some years later. So what is it you're hoping this is? Is this series about um, changing the minds of policymakers 
um, educating the public. Um, what's the what's the goal, I guess, of sharing yeah. the stories of people who have who have been through this or are going through it? That's a good question, Keith. You know, I, I'm I'm not interested in that much in policy making. If it happens, that's fine. But I'd I'd like every single school in the state to have a robust addiction curriculum, uh, which we, we use a lot of our clips in some schools already. We are de helping develop curriculum for our schools. Uh, our schools need to start this addiction curriculum at a younger, much younger age. Today, generally speaking, uh, sophomores get uh, a couple weeks of uh, education related to, to addiction. And, you know, here's the thing about addiction, Keith that a lot of people don't understand. But the National Institute of Drug Abuse says that uh, about, about 33 million uh, U.S. adults are addicted to alcohol. Uh, and on top of that, about 25 million are in recovery. And when you add on people who have substance use disorders for heroin and cocaine and marijuana, you are at 25% of the U.S. population. Those in recovery uh, are the fortunate ones, like Jay. Jay is doing awesome. Uh, those people, generally speaking, lose about 10 years of the most productive years of their lives because it takes a long time to get out of in, into recovery and be successful, and it takes a long time to, to go into recovery. You know, the biggest issue with this disease, Dr. Barkin will tell you, if he, if he uh, interviews a patient and tells them they have a brain tumor, they want to get that brain tumor removed in, uh, this afternoon. But if he tells them that they have an addiction to a drug, they will do everything they can to protect that, uh, that relationship. Um, and we saw that in our own family. The, the denial of, uh, of addiction and the stigma associated with it makes people very reluctant to, to go into recovery. So it, this is an education thing, Keith. Yeah, thank you very much. Very interesting, and uh, appreciate you joining the conversation. David uh, Dave Packham with Voices of Hope, the documentary series, a collaboration with the nonprofit SEED program, which stands for Students Empowered to End Dependency. It's airing on Maine Public Television. We're going to take a quick break. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. Our topic today, cannabis use and young people. What do we know about how it affects them physically and mentally? And how prevalent is marijuana among students in Maine? With me, Jay Orser, senior at Yarmouth High School, and Dr. Jeff Barkin, psychiatrist and past president of the Maine Medical Association. Share your comments and questions. Email talk at mainepublic.org. Comment on our Facebook page or on Twitter or Instagram, or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. Dr. Barkin, we heard uh, just before the break this discussion about, um, about addiction. And there's a popular uh, maybe sentiment, uh, and maybe this is because of people of my age who lived through the 60s and 70s that, oh, well, there are all these other drugs that are very addictive, but gee, marijuana at least is the, you know, it's the least dangerous. Uh, and we even mocked it. it we'd mocked, you know, the 1930s uh, f uh, film um, Reefer Madness, you know, we sort of made fun of it. But, but with this new... Uh, this new type of marijuana, this new high potent type of marijuana, addiction is an issue. 
Addiction is very much an issue. The newer strains and the new strains are really potent. I'm a product. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And uh, people in those days had access to cannabis that had two to 3% THC by weight. Okay. So if you had a gram of of pot, only two to three percent of it by weight had THC. Now, fast forward to today. Now, uh, you go into a cannabis store and they'll show the potency, and it can range from 18, 20, 30 percent THC by weight. And what we know about addiction is that the earlier you're exposed to the highest potency, the greater your risk of becoming dependent upon a substance. And that's really what Jay's story illustrates so nicely. What we also know is if we're willing to accept that over time, the potency, the amount of the psychoactive ingredient tetrahydrocannabinol, THC in cannabis has gone way up, exponentially up, so too have harms. So for example, if you ask what percent of cases of psychosis and schizophrenia are attributed to cannabis back in say the seventies, it was about 2%. So when the potency was low, the percent of psychotic related cannabis admissions was low. But now as the uh, potency of cannabis has increased and become 25, 30%, now the number of cases of psychosis and schizophrenia is between eight and 12%. So the number of cases of psychosis and psychosis means that you don't know what's real, okay? So when somebody smokes pot and they get high, their sense of reality is distorted there is a subset of people, a group of people who develop an inability to tell what's real. Maybe they become paranoid and panicky. Maybe they hear voices or even see things. It's really scary. But the scary thing is if those symptoms continue on for months, that by definition becomes a disorder called schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is a long-term disorder. And it really, really uh, damages people's lives. So when we know that there is a risk factor for a subgroup, of young people, we just wanna bring attention, understanding that there's a thriving cannabis market in Maine. The other thing that's come up at, now that cannabis is legal and has been studied is the effect of cannabis on intelligence. So, and no offense, Jay, to you, cause you stopped using and you've been clean and sober. But if you look at heavy users of cannabis, uh, again, in youth, high school, you see a eight point average drop in IQ. Now, I don't know about, I bet everybody on this show, on this panel, kind of likes their IQ and probably isn't going to want to have something that's going to shave points off. But, you know, I'm a doctor and I learned during COVID not to tell people what to do, because if you tell people what to do, it'll do the opposite. I'm also the proud dad of, of grown kids, and I learned that. But what I will say is we've got to understand the harms. And high-potency cannabis in use is associated with an eight-point loss of IQ, an ever-increasing rate of conversion to psychosis, which can become schizophrenia, uh, for some, an escalation into harder drugs. And it's really important for us to understand uh, that this is a real effect in youth. It's not some polemic. It's not a doctor wagging his finger and shaking his head. That's not it at all. We all have to make good, responsible decisions based upon the best possible evidence. And explain what's happening there. Um, the the THC is affecting a part of the brain that's still in development, is continuing to develop until the age of 25. And it just so happens that that part of the brain also has um, a, a, a higher number of, of receptors for THC. Can you explain what, what's happening? Sure. The parts of the brain, and Jay 
really illustrated this when he talked about not really understanding the co consequences of his drug use, not really taking into account the future, not being able to plan. And those sorts of strategies are pretty much missing in youth, particularly young males. And that's why us guys, when we're young, our car auto insurance rates are so high. And then when we hit age 25, those auto insurance rates go down. And that's because the part of the brain, the frontal lobe that does judgment, that's able to plan and sequence, make logical thoughts, plan for the future, it takes that much time to develop in guys to about age 25. And it turns out that THC, one of, one of many psychoactive molecules in cannabis, binds to receptors in the frontal lobe, and that's the part of the brain. If you put your finger on your forehead, what's right underneath that is your frontal lobe. And that's the part of the brain that does judgment, planning, the ability to do a game, a board game, 20 questions, reason. And that part of the brain is in essence getting hyper-stimulated when THC binds to its receptors, making it more difficult for the normal networks that get established in learning to occur. And as a result, you end up with a loss of intellect, largely related to deficits in learning and parts of the brain that uh, are able to lay down new memories as well as judgment. And then the emergence in some people, kids who are at risk of these psychotic symptoms that we just discussed. I want to uh, bring in now Bill Messer. He's a substance use counselor at Scarborough High School. Bill Messer, welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what what are you seeing? You've heard the conversation here about uh, some personal experiences and about uh, the general risks. What are you seeing among students in terms of cannabis use? Well, the cannabis use is some of the residual effects of, I think, kind of a macro or a systemic issue in the state where... I would say over the last few years, support systems, uh, whether it's residential, outpatient, case management services, uh, it's been hard for families and, and kids in general to really receive the services they need. Uh, so with the combination of the rise of drugs, overdoses, at-risk behaviors, limited community-based resources, the whole growing mental health concern, schools now, like, they're in place of having to adapt, having to review and assess the kids' well-being, not just like how to work with students educationally, but how do you treat and work with the whole individual student. And, and, that's, and that's been a, a big, large, I think, cultural change for many schools in the state. Like, how do you work with kids that are dealing with this addiction? And so, you know, Dr. Beckham had talked about the neurological effects and the short-term, long-term effects of the brain and the development and what we need to do as educators, like how do we connect with kids and teach them and work with families. So, you know, some of the things Scarborough High School is doing, they've taken more of an aggressive stance on looking at the mental health issues of our school and taking data that's been uh, derived from re recent re uh, surveys over the last couple of years to really come together and implement different positions to help, you know, the student population. So they've hired uh, me as a new drug counselor. They've hired four other clinicians to work with kids. And from that, we've got an team group that's going to be starting after February break, uh, working with kids that uh, they're connected with family addiction. Um, we have different uh, 
Voices of Hope um, services uh, in a classroom that we have by run by Mary Record that she teaches and works with kids with, you know, uh, addictions and, and mental health issues. And just our core curriculum has to change as well. Yeah, do you have you to know, get, I'm couple, just curious if you have to, Jay mentioned earlier he, he was reluctant to seek help because he was afraid he was going to be in trouble. Is that part of the challenge here? You've got, you know, authority figures in a school but you're trying to convince these kids who might have multiple issues to trust you and to trust that you're not going to, you know, turn them in or get them in trouble for things that they're doing? Yeah, that's usually a common question when we meet with kids is like, what is the confidentiality? How much can I disclose? How can I trust you? And, you know, working with kids over the years, one of the first questions they'll ask me or another counselor, like, well, what's your what's your position? What's your personal experience with addiction? And I often respond, well, how's my answer going to influence you? And from there, it's all about connection. Kids want to see some con- connection with the counselor of, like, how do you see them? How do you view them? How are they going to be judged? So for kids to be able to even sit down and have a conversation with an adult, a stranger in a lot of cases, it's a big step. And I think that level of engagement, how clinicians and, and providers connect with kids is, is paramount in, in them being able to trust and talk about their addiction. And what often happens, Keith, it's just not the addiction that we talk about. It's, it's co-occurring. It's the other mental health issues that that are being undetected, and, and we talk about that, too. So when kids have anxiety, depression, or or whatever they're struggling with, uh, the residual effects are often um, drugs, drugs and alcohol to help self-medicate and, and to avoid those, those tough subjects in life. Yeah, sure. Bill Messer, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Bill Messer, substance use counselor at... Uh, Scarborough High School. I want to bring in uh, a call here. Let's see if we can go to the uh, phones here. And Larry calling from Kittery. Hi, Larry. Welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, Great program. Um, I'm looking forward to... Hello? Yes, go ahead. Yep, you're on the air. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the the episode. Um, I'm a therapist and a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, licensed clinical professional counselor, uh, and I have a background in behavioral forensics. And, you know, whether it's uh, the schools, parents, or justice, meaning probation, uh, you know, I've had a period where I was referred a lot of adolescents, and this was after marijuana was legalized in Maine. So it was interesting because I really didn't get that many previous to that, uh, which kind of said to me, you know, what I was thinking even before that, uh, you know, when we legalized medical marijuana, uh, you know, I see the uses, especially for people for quality of life. If you had a cancer patient or you had an AIDS patient who couldn't eat and were going through treatments and whatever. And that was, that was fine with me. And, you know, marijuana has never been, and the doctor probably would verify this, uh, uh, approved for use 
for any psychiatric illness. So, for instance, it doesn't make depression better. In fact, it probably makes it worse. It doesn't make anxiety better. I mean, I've had lots of patients who have told me after use for a period of time they get paranoid and anx- more anxious. So sure. uh, I, I was very upset when the state of Maine went along and went in the back door with the medical and then all of a sudden went to recreational. And yeah. I'm thinking, well, what Larry, happened? I thought, it was a, I thought it was a medicine. Yeah, Larry, Larry I need to, we need to move, move along, but I understand your thought. Dr. Barkin, any thoughts on, I, I guess, I don't want to get into a, an argument about maybe whether medical marijuana should have been happened or not. Um, uh, I want to keep it in the present, and what are we going to do here about uh, treating this issue? But any, any thoughts? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. That's that's exactly the key question. I think what I would like to see, and I'll speak for other doctors whose opinion that I've heard from, are a few things. One is the term medical marijuana is a strange term because, as Larry said, there is no FDA indication for any THC product. There is a drug called Epidiolex, which is cannabidiol. It's used for certain juvenile epilepsies. But as a practical matter, this is not a debate uh, about use. We have a market in Maine that people have used. The question is, how do we how do we protect people who are at risk of harm? And I think a common sense way of doing so, and again, hearing from other physicians, I think that there's increasing acceptance of this concept would be to bring back for people under age 21, so it's kind of at harmony with alcohol and cigarettes, a true qualifying condition model. You asked what what could be done. And what I mean is if people under age 21 could be qualified by a physician or a nurse practitioner with an in-person examination, but for a list of diagnoses that are real diagnoses, things like epilepsy, cancer, cancer uh, chemotherapy-related pain, multiple sclerosis, HIV, that sort of thing, rather than a permission slip to go out and get high. Uh, I I think that as a common sense solution, that would go a long way of deterring the use which is associated with harm in our young people who we do want to protect. I think all of us feel that way uh, while allowing people to choose uh, who are adults if they're going to use cannabis products. And I think that a common sense solution like that would go a long way. The other thing that goes a long way is avoiding the areas of disagreement and coming together in the areas of agreement. And I think that law enforcement, education, treatment, uh, harm reduction through peer recovery programs, all coming together. And and big thank you to Dave Packham for putting together Voices of Hope that does just that. It brings people in recovery together with law enforcement, treatment, harm reduction. And we have to come up with the solutions. They're not going to come from the outside. They're certainly not going to come from the cannabis industry who has an economic incentive to thrive. And as Dave said, to get new users and those those new users are young ones. And I think that as we've been through the social experiment and we're living it every day, uh, we see the good. We see the tax money come into the state. Uh, but we see the harms. We see the 1,400% increase in ER admissions for kids under age six, which tells us, hey, you know, there are things we could do. Um, If you have edibles, lock them up, treat them like other medications or like a firearm, because given to a uh, young child or even a pet, high potency cannabis products are really dangerous. A friend of mine 
was having visitors over and they had a cannabis product joint and they have a new puppy and the new puppy eats everything, including the quarter joint that was left over and $6,000, several canine seizures uh, and an ICU visit later. Uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, that dog, that puppy shouldn't be eating cannabis and we're seeing more and more accidental exposures. People are walking down the street, throwing out their joint. So even a pet walking is at risk. We have to be compassionate to risk. We have to not condemn. We have to realize that just with like beer, we have this microbrewery market in Maine. Now we have other distilled spirits in Maine. We can embrace the success of those while still protecting people that are vulnerable. All right. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, more of your questions and comments. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Keith Shortall. You're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the show, the impact of cannabis use on youth. My guests are forensic and clinical psychiatrist Dr. Jeff Barkin and Yarmouth High School senior Jay Orser. Join the conversation, the number 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org, tweet at maincalling, or post to our Facebook page. I want to go uh, back to the phones now. We're joined by Megan Scott, who is with the Maine CDC, um, who is here to talk a little bit about what uh, that organization is doing, what that agency is doing to prevent youth cannabis use. Megan Scott, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, thanks for this opportunity to talk about the work we're doing. Um, so we are tasked with doing exactly what Dr. Bart Barkin just discussed um, as far as bringing all those different sectors of the communities together to, to really think about how we're going to, to address the public health impacts of, of, you know, this increased access to cannabis that we now have in the state. Um, and so as was mentioned earlier, and we, we, we know we really need to start earlier in a young person's life. And so um, the uh, Governor Mills uh, recently invested a million dollars um, into substance use prevention and um, we're tasked with uh, increasing prevention in middle schools across the state. And so how we're going to do that is uh, we have a network of, of community prevention partners um, in every public health district. Um, as of right now, there's about 20 different coalitions. Um, so pretty much everybody has one in their community um, that's working on this. And they're going to be the ones that are going to be um, working with the schools they they already do a lot of this work. Um, they engage with with youth. Um, you know, we know that the more uh, a youth is engaged and feels connected and and feel that they matter in their community, the less likely they are to turn to substances. Um, they also work with parents. Um, you know, we're finding a lot now that parents don't realize um, how different cannabis is is today. Um, so making sure that parents really do have that awareness that what the product that's out there today is very different than what they may have had around when they were young. And um, they also work a lot with policymakers um, in their communities to, you know, they're the ones on the ground that really see the impact of these policies in our communities. And they're also working with cannabis retailers, too. Um, you know, we really do want to promote safe storage um, because, you know, these, especially with the edibles, they are um, such high potency. And, you know, oftentimes they look like something that is safe for a child to use. You know, some of the gummies look like the the, gum, the fruit gummies that kids um, eat or even some of the, the candies that they eat. So we really want to be working with um, adults in the community, um, you know, if they, if they do choose to have it in their home to make sure that they are um, storing it safely. Yeah. Um, Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, letting us know what uh, CDC is doing. Appreciate you joining the program. Megan Scott with the Maine CDC. Uh, I, I was going to ask you, Jay, I haven't spoken, haven't brought you in in a while, 
But um, what was your experience in high school in terms of, you know, were, were you warned about marijuana? Did you have it in classes? Were there, was there a sense that, um, you know, that the, the teachers or others were paying attention to this issue and trying to guide you, uh, guide students away from it? Um, we did have some talks during like a special class that we had, but at that point it was already like too late. I was already in active use with pot and most of the times I'd be going to those classes, I learning about it and me and somebody would like giggle about it and laugh about it and be like, huh, we're already high. So I think it needs to be introduced sooner to kids before they're already experimenting and trying these things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's go to the phones and to, let's bring in Alex, who's calling from Augusta. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. Go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, yep. Uh, my name is Alex McMahon. I'm the uh, CEO of the Healing Community Medco, uh, so I'm actually in the industry, and I'm a representative of the Maine Cannabis Industry Association. Um, I'd like to start by saying we as an industry are willing to be a resource for the state of Maine and the CDC and work with our community uh, any way we can to reduce the impact of our industry on our youth. Uh, we agree that this is an extremely important topic. You know, everybody knows that uh, cannabis is not good for young minds. Um, fortunately, a lot of data from Colorado and other cannabis legal states, including data from the U.S. CDC, shows that youth use um, reduces with regulated markets, you know, essentially taking the reins away from the illicit market and putting them in the hands of licensed business owners who are checking IDs 100 percent of the time, uh, turns out works. Um, we've actually, uh, from the longest running studies from the U.S. CDC, we've noticed that youth use actually declines, as well as the percentage of teens saying that cannabis is, is easy to get um, declines. Um, so uh, uh, let me just let me just jump in and ask you what sorts of what sorts of steps would you was the would the industry be willing uh, to take? Is there a discussion about that? About uh, be, because there's there have been the accusations that the industry wants younger younger users. That's how they develop a market. But what what would you what would you be willing to do? Yeah, so we absolutely don't want younger users. That's um, definitely false. Um, we do. Uh, have active ongoing conversations about this all the time. Uh, so really um, our packaging requirements are about as strict as they could possibly be. All cannabis that's sold in the clear market here in Maine has to leave all stores in uh, child-resistant packaging. Um, and so that is already in, in place. There's really nothing we could do with packaging um, that's going to further prevent access that we're not already doing. I really think that the biggest thing that we could do to improve is by educating the public on the proper ways to store cannabis. The reality is youth aren't accessing cannabis through the industry. They're ac accessing it through parents or siblings, whether intentionally or, or through just lackluster storage methods. Um, so really, cannabis should be stored the same way as anything you would want to keep away from your kids. So locking it up in your liquor cabinet, locking it up in your medicine cabinet, locking it up the uh, same way you would lock up firearms or your prescription medication. Um, so really, it's, we, we as an industry think that the best uh, solution to this, uh, this issue is to 
further educate the public that, hey, you shouldn't leave your gummies just sitting out on the coffee table. You should put them, you know, treat it the way you would, you know, like I said, a, a, a bottle of prescription pills. Yeah. Um, uh, we do. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to I appreciate your input. And I, I, re, I wanted to take the call because I, wa- I wanted to hear a voice from there. And I appreciate that. But I, I just want to uh, uh, to move along here because we don't have much uh, a lot of time left. Um, uh, Dr. Barkin, any response, first of all, before I go to our next call? Well, I love the fact that we agree on the importance of safe storage uh, and that preventing diversion to the youth is really, really important. I guess the question I would have, and I don't know if we have Mr. McMahon on the phone still, but would the industry be on board with legislation that would bring back sort of strict medical qualifying conditions for people under age 21 who would need to be seen face-to-face, not just over the internet for for a med card, uh, and have a true underlying medical condition, cancer, HIV. Yeah, sorry, he's not he's not on the line, so we won't be able to hear that. Um, but it's a good it's a good topic for a future show. Um, I I do want to bring in Mark now, uh, who is calling from Auburn. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the program. Hey, good morning, y'all. Can you hear me? Yes. Go on. You're on the air. Go ahead. Great. Yeah. So this is uh, Mark Barnett, and I'm actually um, the executive director of the Maine Craft Cannabis Association. Um, I'm also a medical uh, retail store. Uh, caregiver store owner myself. And um, so I'm glad that you asked that question. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Um, I did also just want to, um, I, ha- I had a question um, and I-, I haven't really heard more kind of details about exactly, you know, what types of products are getting into kids' hands, um, particularly through the school system. Um, I think Alex's, uh, the previous caller's point about the types of cannabis or the ways that people are accessing them is a good one. But I I also want to maybe ask a question about the availability of these products that are coming in, not even from parents or or older siblings, and certainly not through the regulated markets, but online and through the mail. And so I just wonder, you know, as someone who's in classrooms or dealing with people who are in classrooms, you know, what, what kinds of products are you really seeing? You know, I have a parent who's an educator, and to them, it's all disposable vape products, which are literally ordered online and then sold peer-to-peer. So I'm just curious whether that's something that you see in the schools and how, you know, how do we deal with that? You know, coming after the, the industry or coming after the certification isn't really going to address that problem. No. Dr. Barkin? Well, I would ask Jay that because he's yeah. in high school. What it's is a, the source? My, my understanding from the program that we did from Mary Record, who really runs the program at Scarborough High, is that it, in fact, is vaping, but flour is readily available, both on the legal and illegal market. But let's ask Jay. Um, yeah, there are places you can go online to just get these items. And it's way easier to do that when you're underage because there's that person's not seeing your ID. They're not seeing you face to face. So it's easier for kids just to go online and order it or have that person that is of age, whatever age that is of age to go to that place and pick it up for you and then distribute it. Right. So again, kind of like beer, right? That was always what was done is the older kids would get the younger kids in middle school beer or, 
you know, the underclassmen. So it sounds like it's kind of the exact same dynamic, but without the understanding of the real harms associated, that there is some difference between, you know, 84% THC vape and uh, a, a beer, correct? Yeah, there's a big difference between it. Um, uh, yeah, it's just so much, it's just so easier for kids nowadays to have that older person as a resource and the people that are selling it to that person, they don't know the real reason. Like I could have one of my friends that is legally 21, go to the store, buy this item. And the person that's selling to them doesn't even know the real purpose for it. Right. Mm. So how would you discourage that? I mean, like if you're interacting with your friends, in high school in Yarmouth, how would you address that? I mean, bearing in mind that that's a real opening. I don't really know how I would address it because I know I, I can't tell them what to do. They have to make their own choices for them, just how I made my own choices for me, just like I got sober. But still, I still hang out with them, even though I know they're not doing the right thing. I just choose to not participate in those choices that they are doing do, do they not do they listen to you or do you do they do you get a sense that maybe you might have an influence on them given your own experience um i have definitely broken through to a few of them um there are some that don't talk to me anymore um because um they see that i'm not using with them anymore so they don't ask me to hang out anymore because I'm not getting high with them anymore or I'm not drinking with them anymore. I do go to occasional parties, um, but I don't use when I'm at those parties. Um, I'm just there more for the social aspect, but it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Well, again, um, I think uh, everybody listening and uh, on the panel is really appreciative of you coming forward and sharing a really personal stuff in front of a lot of people you don't know, but it, it really as uh, it really adds uh, to the overall conversation and, the, and a better understanding of how these substances are affecting uh, so many people uh, and, and in your age group and and otherwise. So um, we really do appreciate it. And um, with that. We're out of time, so a good place to thank both of my guests, uh, Dr. Jeff Barkin and Yarmouth High School senior Jay Orser. And a reminder, uh, the subject of tonight's Voices of Hope episode on Maine Public Television is cannabis use and its impact on youth. It airs at 8 o'clock. Today's sound engineer was George Thomas. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. Visit maincalling.org for our audio archive or subscribe to Maine Calling's weekly newsletter. I'm Keith Shortall. You've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.